If the goal is not to be embarrassing, to not detract from the Christian faith so that people embrace the gospel, good, noble purposes. But really, do we really think that by saying to the to the unbeliever, you can have evolution, but we're going to keep uh, the depravity of man, the substitutionary atonement of Christ, and all these offensive doctrines that are at the heart of the Christian faith, is the unbeliever really going to say, that's a good trade? No, they're going to be equally offended by all this. So the idea that somehow we've got to make Christianity less offensive because evolution is embarrassing, and somehow that'll make the ideas that we're all sinners in need of a savior, and that uh, we're not good people, none of that is is palatable to the world. They all think this is highly offensive. Welcome to this bonus episode of the Leftovers podcast. It is a privilege to uh, welcome Dr. Nathaniel Jeanson with us today. Um, why don't you say a bit of a hello before I introduce you officially? Thank you so much for the opportunity. It's a real privilege for me. Um, so Nathaniel has a, has a PhD in cell development biology from Harvard University. He's previously carried out research at the Institute for Creation Research. It currently works at a research as a researcher, sorry, at Answers in Genesis, which who we're big fans of here. He's also the author of the groundbreaking book, Replacing Darwin. Um, and now we've invited Nathaniel onto this, this uh, podcast episode um, to respond uh, to an article we saw on our website, but also um, to tell us a little bit about his book, which responds to the article, um, which is uh, really great. Um, yeah, so before we get into the nitty-gritty science, which I know nothing of, I'm not a scientist, I did no science at school, apart from maths, if you can argue about being a science, I'm sure you can. Um, we're, we're not going to read the article out, uh, we'll link it into the episode. Uh, I'm just going to list some theological issues before we get into the 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 science so Sh shall we just maybe yes, just ahead. um give a summary first yes give a summary so that's a good okay. idea okay so so the article um it was entitled god's genius in evolution um so this was an opinion piece written by somebody called james knight who is a christian and not a scientist and in this article um, mr knight implores christians to stop embarrassing our faith by clinging to creation theory and failing to accept evolution theory as the true and legitimate um, explanation for life on Earth. Um, so yeah, that's that's a summary. So please, please do read the article um, if you haven't already, listeners. You can pause now and do that. Yeah, um, okay. in the same way with our, our leftover sermon episodes in the way that you go and listen to the sermon first, read the article first and then listen to the podcast. It would make much more sense. Um, so before, we, like I said, before we get into the science, um, there's an issue with our, us being images of God in, in his uh, defense of evolution. Um, if we evolved from apes and are related to whales, then we're reducing um, the nature of a holy God, which is, is not something that we want to be doing. Um, there's an issue with um, sin and death as well in this article. If we weren't in 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 in, in responsible for sin, uh, and then we we weren't responsible for bringing death into the world, then also there's no need for Jesus to come and save us from our sin, from our death. So there's an issue with salvation. There's an issue with where do we find our authority as well? What is our authority found in? 
is it found in the word of man or is it found in the word of a holy God um, where he uh, uh, James misquotes or misuses the 1 Corinthians passage in particular um, Paul actually is speaking to the church who are listening more to words of man and splitting off and saying I'm a follower of Apollos I'm a follower of Paul Paul is saying don't be that be followers of God's word so that's why we're doing this episode and that's why we're looking into this we want to be followers of God's word and that is our goal tonight I also want to say we um, love James as a follower of Christ uh, I have no reason to believe he isn't saved um, James we'd love to have a conversation with you if you somehow watch this it'd be a joy to, to talk to you and get to know you um, and yeah please don't take this as an, as an attack we want a conversation essentially um, yes that's that's all I had to say on that I think again we'll go into the theological um, meaning in a later episode um, but Lisa being the scientist out of the two of us um, you, you've prepared some very good questions that I would not have thought of so would you like to to go go to question one yeah okay so okay so first off um, I'll, I'll quote yourself um, if that's okay Nathaniel um, so you said in October of 2017 I published replacing Darwin its central thesis is that the progress of science has done more than rebut Darwin 150 years of scientific advances have uncovered a full-fledged scientific alternative one that is actively replacing his ideas so we wondered if first off you could maybe just tell us a bit about how how Darwin's theory came to be the most um, widely held theory among the mainstream scientific community Yes, there's a couple things that come to mind for me. First of all, is the nature of, of the prevailing view at that time, and Darwin acknowledges as much uh, in the closing chapters of his book dealing with the potential objections to his work, saying why is it that so many people have rejected this view, and then goes through about four reasons why he thinks it's time for a change. The main view that he argues against in his book is the idea that God creates individual species in their current locations, fixed and unchanging, no new species forming. And if that was the opposition, which again, from reading his book, you think that was the main opposition, it's a fairly easy position to rebut, we can say now. One of his main arguments is simply comparing the diversity of breeds, let's say in horses or donkeys, to the types of diversities that we see in the natural world among species. And it's, it's a very clever point. In fact, I've used it myself. Where do you draw the line? Let's say you've got all this variety in horse breeds in terms of sizes, coat colors, hair length, all that. Where do you say this is where a breed stops, a species starts, and he basically takes his opponent's arguments to their logical conclusion. What's not well known, and, and this is the type of thing you'd likely hear taught in science classrooms, this is the history of the evolutionary theory. There was this old idea, God did it, and then he came up with some good evidence to refute it. So Darwin did a good job rebutting the idea of species fixity. What's not well known is even people like Linnaeus, about 100 years prior, originally held a view like that, the, the species fixity view. But over time, later in life, this is the not well-known part, Linnaeus adopted something closer to what would be the modern young earth creationist version that God creates kinds of creatures, or to use a modern classification category, families. So horses, donkeys, zebras, separate species. There's three different recognized species of zebras. And uh, 
couple different versions of, of uh, wild asses that are recognized. Those belong to the same family, and the modern creationist view would view these seven species as coming from a single pair on board the ark, because horses would be an unclean kind, so two of them on board the ark. Linnaeus held something much closer to that later in life, and I think it was uh, Lyell who brought this to Darwin's attention after Origin of Species was published. Oh, by the way, did you know there was this other view and, and Darwin was not aware of this. So I'd say one of the main reasons that Darwin was able to gain traction is he had a very easily refutable opposition that we can look back and say, yeah, that, that didn't make a tremendous amount of sense and came up with good arguments against it. Some of them that are still valid today because uh, there, there are still folks out there who think that God created species. I don't think you can justify that biblically, but you can also even use some of Darwin's arguments to say this is how it doesn't quite make sense from uh, the perspective of biology or uh, the geography of species around the globe. Another thing that I didn't recognize until later in my career, and this actually came out, I think, of a, a peer-reviewed British journal. They were saying Darwin happened to be at a key inflection point in general scientific history. This was the era, 1850s or so, when science was transitioning from the, well, the, the hobby of the wealthy to science as a professional career. And Darwin appealed specifically. That's, so when he gives us four reasons why, yes, it's time to change our view from the dominant view being something opposite of what I'm saying to something new, he, he appealed specifically to the younger generation. And to, to paraphrase him with modern terms, he basically says, there are some old dogs you can't teach new tricks. So I appeal to the younger generation whose minds can be changed to embrace this view, and that's what happened. And this idea that there was a generational uh, seismic shift happening at that point in history, independent of Darwin. Again, that's not a creationist idea. This is in a this is in a mainstream journal, which I found fascinating. So it seems like number one, again, he came up with a an idea that uh, whose opposition was somewhat weak. And again, there were other views out there, just not as prominent. And secondly, his ideas enter at a time when there's a profound shift in how science is done. And I think about this especially now, because you think of how might something like this change? Could we have another Darwin-like moment where the scientific community shifts its majority view? That aspect, the generational and financial aspect of all that, I would say makes that very difficult because you do right now science is professional. It's done by professionals with billions of dollars. I mean, in, in the United States, the National Institutes of Health has a 60, 50, 60 billion dollar budget. National, the National Science Foundation has 10 billion dollars. There's massive amounts of money. And that's not to say that somehow all scientists are corrupt or that sort of thing. That's not what I'm implying at all. I have colleagues who are evolutionists and they do good science and, and all that. My point is there's a lot more riding on this now than there was in Darwin's day. And I think we can't ignore that when thinking about any field, independent of creation evolution, this is now a professional discipline in which incomprehensible amounts of money are thrown at it. And that's something I think as we think about the future is, is worth discussing going forward. But looking back at his time, those I think were some of the key factors that led to his views going from you know self-acknowledged great minority to within 10 years, that sentence in The Origin of Species changes. And he says, why did it used to be that the majority of the scientific community disagreed with me? So within a decade, that, that whole opinion in the, in, the, in the mainstream changes towards Darwin and, and away from rejecting him. Wow. Thank you. Did you get that? Vaguely. Yeah, that was very, <laughs> that was very elaborate, very well explained. Thank you. And uh, 
yeah so um i guess some of that actually comes i recognize some bits from from your book replacing darwin so just give us a very simple and brief overview of, of what's contained in your book replacing darwin the couple things come to mind first of all some of it is sort of laymanized summary of papers i had published prior so all of the technical details won't necessarily be found in the book i was trying to come up with something that could appeal both to critics who have a technical background as well as to lay audience i had a pastor read through the book and uh i mean it's it goes into it's in depth but he said he could follow it and he had pointers about well you need to explain this term and and the first several chapters are dual purpose it's basically the history of genetics which on, on one hand is designed to help bring a lay person up to speed on the genetics they need to know to follow the later data that relates to creation evolution. Secondly, it's also in a sense to establish credibility with the critic. Before we're jumping into the really controversial stuff, let me just lay out for you the history of the key field of science relevant to this. And okay, this guy isn't quite a quack that I thought he was because he's actually describing what I just learned in class. And I've seen some critics who, who have blogged about this say, well, you know, there's really not much I could object to in the first several chapters, which I considered a, a backhanded compliment. But the major goal of the book, as the title describes, isn't to uh, say, here's where he got it wrong. Evolution's wrong, the end. There's been a lot of that done over the years. I personally think a lot of those anti-evolutionary arguments are quite good. Part of the reason for writing the book in the manner that I did relates to the response of the mainstream community to creationists over the last several decades. And the mainstream community has said to simply rebut Darwin is insufficient to earn creation science a place at the scientific table. Instead, they've said, to be a bona fide scientific theory or model, creationist ideas have to make testable predictions, put things in print that future experiments could reveal to be true or false, or just, you know, a favorite example of mine is gravity makes testable predictions. Right now, real time, I've got my grip on this water bottle. Gravity predicts if I release my grip, it'll fall, which of course it does, but we can test this over and over again. Gravity is a scientific idea that makes testable predictions, predictions that we can, in theory, used to disprove it. So they'll say, okay, creation scientists, you now say God creates kinds of creatures, not individual species. So how does that predict for us how many new species will form this year? And in a sense, uh, the book takes creation science and makes it stick its neck out because now we've got specific testable predictions we can, we can now in the future times evaluate. And in fact, it was rather satisfying about four months after the book came out it was published in October 2017. In January of 2018, Peter and Rosemary Grant's research group published a uh, landmark paper in Science magazine. They're, of course, the, the Princeton researchers who've done research on the, the finch species in the Galapagos Islands for decades. And the Galapagos finches are usually the textbook example of natural selection in action. And in fact, I found out about the paper in February, February, of course, being the, the Celebrate Darwin Month, when uh, one of these evolutionary blogs was in a sense, dancing on these findings, saying, let's rub this in the creationist faces. Look, we found a new species of Darwin's finch. That was the major announcement in January of 2018. There's a new species we've watched in real time form over the last 30, 40 years. And lo and behold, if you look at the raw data and, and convert that, those data to, to uh, and extrapolate and, and figure out what, what, is, what does this imply about the rate of new bird species formation, it's exactly in line with what I predicted in replacing Darwin. And of course, 2018, we've got genetic data that we can we can we can invoke and investigate, which they did. They said, okay, genetically, how specifically did this new species of finch form from these 
pre-existing ones, I gave a specific mechanism in replacing Darwin. It follows that mechanism almost exactly. So that was satisfying. And one of the uh, one of the additional predictions I put in replacing Darwin relates to the history of humanity. And this, of course, this newer book that just came out, Traced Human DNA's Big Surprise, is in, in one sense a book-length fulfillment of one of the predictions I put in replacing Darwin, which we can discuss more later. But the, the bigger point is the goal of the book isn't just to say, here's where Darwin is wrong, but to say, here is a better, superior, scientifically superior explanation for the origin of species that meets the criteria that evolutionists have demanded for 40 years. And so let's revisit this discussion and see who does this better. And what I anticipate is that in years to come, as this model sees success, because I think we've seen scientific successes happen just in the last four and a half years, the evolutionists will now begin to react to creation science the way creation scientists have reacted to evolution and then vice versa so i anticipate that some evolutionists will say well here's where your model is wrong then i will turn around and say i don't care until you give me something better you make testable predictions yourselves that we can evaluate what place do you have at the scientific table and that's not to be rude or, or belligerent it's simply saying let's be consistent in the standards we've applied i've heard what's been said i read the evolutionary literature this is what's been stated and this is now an attempt to meet that standard I'd like to think it did, but again, to me, the ultimate test of any scientific idea is do those predictions come true? Cool. I'm not giving short answers, I'm sorry. <laughs> That's quite all right. Um, <laughs> the reason we brought you on, you're, 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 um, you're an expert on these kinds of things. So um, thank you for, for going into it. We'll just have to play it over and over and over <laughs> again. <laughs> we'll get a lot more plays on this episode than the rest, I think. <laughs> Okay, so um, perhaps we'll we'll now move on to the to the article itself. Mm. Um, okay, so. Uh... so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so um, at one point, um, Mr. Knight writes, <clears throat> because for too many decades now, our profound and beautiful Christian faith has been embarrassed and distorted by the completely unnecessary and distracting arguments between creationists who don't accept evolution alongside their faith and Christians who do. I really want to encourage us, brothers and sisters in Christ, that this unnecessary division can start to abate if we fall in love with these creative elements of God's genius that are explored through the sciences and come together and embrace truth and facts. So, um, Nathaniel, um, if you could um, comment on this quote um, with reference to um, what science is actually really about. You have kind of touched on that a bit previously, but um, what, what are your thoughts on, on this quote from Mr. Knight here? Yes, and what also grabbed my attention was the, was the end of that, where he says we need to embrace the truth in the facts, and that the implied assumption of the article is evolution represents what's true, these are the facts and the creation scientists don't have any. And I'd say that's from a scientific perspective, one of the, I'd say the fundamental problems with that. First of all, I kind of have to chuckle, and this is not in, in a derisive sense, but science is often given so much weight as an arbiter of truth, yet is one of the weakest methods we have, and I'll explain that in a moment, to know what really is true. And what I mean is, Science is a powerful tool by which to understand the world. Granted, look at the technology we've developed. But at the end of the day, philosophically, science is ultimately pragmatic. 
the ultimate test of science is does it work as we talked about testable predictions that's really all that matters it's not some higher standard to which we compare scientific ideas or some uh, axioms of the world it's does this work if it does we go with it and it doesn't really matter if it ultimately corresponds to reality or not it just works and we do it which is a great method because it's again led to all sorts of technological advances what i would why, what i would i guess add to this when he says uh, you know evolution implies that evolution is and, and science is the source of truth and facts number one compared to other methods of knowing the truth i'd say science is somewhat weak again there's a lot that's come out of it but it's ultimately pragmatic it's not designed to come up with the ultimate truth about the globe and secondly evolution is not the holder of the truth i would argue scientifically there there are massive holds in evolution problems with it and then of course the flip side relating back to what we discussed with replacing darwin there are creation science ideas models that are scientifically superior to it. So to say that somehow evolution has cornered the market on truth and facts, I would say is factually an error. And there's all sorts of literature out there that he doesn't address that calls into question the ability of evolution to explain the world that we see, as well as the ability of alternative ideas. And sadly, what I've witnessed over the years is the way this debate often happens is creationist ideas, alternatives are simply assumed away from the start. All you're left with is evolution. And so then evolution becomes the truth and the facts about the world that everyone needs to accept. Oh, that's great. Um, things I picked out from that is um, completely unnecessary and distracting arguments between creationists who don't accept evolution alongside their faith. Um, the, the distracting arguments to me seem like we're trying to understand God's word. And if, if struggling to understand God's word is, is a distractor, a distraction, then I'm, I'm not sure what we're supposed to do <laughs> with our time, with, with the, the word that God has given us. Um, and like you, you brought up the truth and facts. Who is, who is that according to? What's his source of knowledge? It's man. Um, and and I, I hope James recognizes that that man is full of fault, man is full of mistake, like you were talking about. Nathaniel, um, yeah, uh, uh, we're going to dive into this a lot more. There's a lot more to say, isn't it, isn't there, Lisa? If I can, if I can jump in here momentarily, your, to echo your point, that alone, just just leave the science out of it entirely. There are fundamental theological debates happening on this issue, and many theistic evolutionists, or just say non young Earth creationists, will admit yes. It seems like the young earthers have the stronger scriptural argument. And so to dismiss this as somehow a distraction, that to me is a real puzzle. When again, just ignore the science, just leave it out for the moment for sake of argument. Even evolutionists, theistic evolutionists will concede there is this strong scriptural case for young earth creation. So how can you dismiss that as somehow distracting? No, any theological debate, any theological discussion, as you say, that's, that's exactly what we should be doing. Yeah, we, we, we just finished a series on Genesis um, on Sunday mornings going through um, the creation story and onwards to Noah. Um, uh, and one of the points that was made was if we don't regard this as truth, what's the point in regarding the rest of the Bible as truth? Shall we move on? Yes, let's. Okay, just so we, we don't keep you for forever and ever. <laughs> Okay, so um, <clears throat> so Mr. Knight goes on to write, um, 
and I'll quote him here, it's so abundantly and incontrovertibly clear that evolution by natural selection is the correct explanation for the diversity of life on this planet. And he also says, the story of evolution over four billion years is this, all organisms can be traced back to a common ancestor. And so all of the diversity in life we see today is due to common descent with modification through natural selection, genetic mutation, and genetic drift. So Nathaniel, um, <clears throat> could you comment upon why it's not feasible to use these concepts of natural selection, genetic mutation, and genetic drift to explain and prove the Darwinian view of speciation? There's two scientific responses that come to my mind, and maybe the terms possible or plausible being one summary word, and then probable being the other summary word. And I'll explain that in a moment. In terms of can evolution actually happen by the mechanisms he's described, is this a sufficient mechanism to go from non-life chemicals, or even if we grant them the first life, is that sufficient to go from some single-celled primitive creature to humans and the, and the millions of species that exist on Earth? I think we have a very clear no, and I'll explain this because obviously this is not shared by 97, 99% of the scientific community. Michael Behe's work, uh, and, and which is, I'm thinking specifically of his book, Darwin's Black Box, and his concept of irreducible complexity, to me is one of the most airtight arguments against this. And what makes this so strong, and just to, just to explain the context here, Behe is a Catholic who is fine with humans and chimpanzees having a common ancestor. He's fine with the universe being billions of years old. His main qualm is the ability of selection and mutation and the other mechanisms described here to go from simple life to complex life. And he even quotes Darwin. He's, Darwin gives a test. So, so evolution to be scientific, of course, should make testable predictions. Darwin makes one. He says, if it can be demonstrated that any complex organ existed, which could not possibly have been formed by numerous successive slight modifications, my theory would absolutely break down. It's a long Victorian sentence, but simplified basically means if there's something in life, some species, some part of a species, because he's trying to explain everything, some aspect of life that you can't build step by tiny step. And of course, we didn't have genetics in his day that we do today. So we have to translate that in a sense. It's been translated into modern genetic terms. If you can't do the step by tiny step, then evolution breaks down. In other words, evolution does not work by great leaps. It does not work by miracles. You wouldn't explain the origin of birds by a Tyrannosaurus rex laying an egg and out pops a cardinal. It has to go step by tiny step where in a reptile-like creature over millions of years by numerous successive slight modifications goes from reptilian to something more avian. And you can it's almost imperceptible. That's the idea. And so Michael Behe's argument is there are structures, now that, now that we have cell biology, we have biochemistry, we have these, these fields of science genetics, we can say, okay, at the cellular level for you know, pick a process. For this particular process to work, you need this component, this component, this component, maybe five or six. And if you take away any one of those components, the system breaks down. There's numerous examples of this. He says, how do you evolve that step by step? Perhaps the best oversimplification of this is, how do you evolve sexual reproduction? Everyone can understand this. You need male and female. But if you have to evolve step by tiny step, how do you evolve a male when there's no female? He can't pass on maleness, unless there's a female there, you have to have it all at once. You basically have to either have a 
a great evolutionary leap, or you have some sort of miracle. I mean, that's, that's essentially what it is. And again, it's an oversimplification because now we know all that ridiculously complex biology that's involved in sperm meeting the exact egg, species specific, and all, everything that is triggered after that event occurs. We have all sorts of examples of this. This book was published in 96, I think, 1996. So it's been uh, over two decades and I've followed the evolutionary community and you know they'll claim it's been refuted, but they're often either changing definitions, they're not addressing his claim. No one's been able to solve this problem. So in terms of can evolution happen? I'd say his arguments are one of the strongest saying, no, there are certain structures that are impossible to evolve apart from a miracle. So that's a very strong evolutionary argument that every mainstream scientists should have to wrestle with. Now, the second term I mentioned was probability. So ignoring for the moment whether or not this can happen, did it happen? Does the evidence look like evolution did in fact happen? And in the article, uh, Mr. Knight talks about nested hierarchies and such, and, and much of what he discusses and what's discussed in the mainstream community is, is almost identical to what Darwin cited as evidence for his ideas. They just use newer examples. So Darwin didn't have access to genetics, but this idea that you can classify life as a groups within groups, that humans look more similar to chimpanzees and chimpanzees and humans look more similar to primates and primates uh, look more similar to reptiles, excuse me, to mammals than they do to reptiles. And, and you can do this sort of Russian nested doll type classification scheme. He makes an analogy to how we draw family trees. And it's a really good analogy. The problem with the argument is we can classify vehicles in nested hierarchies. We can classify designed things in nested hierarchies. And of course, they have no genealogical relationship. Cars don't reproduce. But the point is, this is how humans who are made in the image of God design things. Why wouldn't the ultimate designer, God himself, design things in this groups within groups pattern itself, himself? And you have all these, all these sorts of analogies for the classic evolutionary arguments over and over again. They'll cite biological similarity. They'll cite, uh, and again, you name it. The response to that is nearly every one of these arguments finds in, in an analogy an equally valid explanation in the realm of creation and design. So, and that's part of the point, that's, that's the middle section of replacing Darwin. Let's take the classic or the, the modern versions of these, these classic evolutionary arguments time and time again, even, even transitional forms. Let's say for sake of argument, they exist. So transitional forms being what evolution predicts. If you evolve a dinosaur into a bird, you should find some half bird, half dinosaur, something like that along the way. So let's say we did. And again, I'm, I'm not a paleontologist. So my point in the book was not to arbitrate the details of paleontology, just the bigger picture. Let's say we find a transitional form. Well, humans design things you could call transitional forms. You think about World War II, amphibious assault vehicles. They blend the features of land vehicles and boats. They're not optimal for either environment. They're perfect for the transitional environment between those, uh, between water and land. Humans design those sorts of things. So if you find a transitional form, you can't say, look, evolution, because equally valid is it could have been designed. And so if both of these arguments predict the same thing, you can't use that evidence to adjudicate between the two. And then I go through other evidences in the book saying, actually, I think the creation model is now superior. It's making better testable predictions. But I think we've got good scientific data saying evolution is, in fact, impossible. There are certain structures you cannot evolve apart from a miracle. And then secondly, I'd say you take all the evidence together. In fact, it does point towards creation being the superior explanation and not evolution. I really liked your, your example of um, the, the half bird, half dinosaur and the amphibious vehicle that was great it, it it mirrors us 
working the way God created us to be. We, we were created to be creative. Um, so that, that's great. I'm going to use that on my teens. That was, that was brilliant. Cool. Okay, then we'll move on to the next question then. Um, so um, later on in the article, Mr. Knight writes, as the genomes of so many animals and plants have been sequenced, we have a picture of evolution so clear that we know where every living thing appears on the tree of life. Um, so Nathaniel, what do, so I refer here to the biological tree of life. Um, what, what does that mean from a creationist viewpoint? Yes, and what he's referring to is, is another way of saying this groups within groups classification. And uh, there's, a, there's a couple things to, to think about here. You can create something that looks like a tree based on mathematical comparisons among various species. You could do this before we had DNA. I mean, it's a little bit harder to quantify. Uh, what percent similar is, is the, my forelimb bone compared to the chimpanzee, compared to the whale, that sort of thing. There's ways to do it where you can approximate and say, okay, we're, we're closer relatively or absolutely in terms of these mathematical numbers to a, a primate versus a whale, but again, closer to a whale than to an insect. And you get this groups within groups pattern. You can, you can, you can create a tree-like structure that represents graphically the relative number or absolute number of differences and similarities among various species. And the evolutionist says, this looks like a tree, therefore it is a tree. And, he, and, and Mr. Knight talks about how we expect from an evolutionary perspective, the way evolution is supposed to work. To get a tree-like structure, we see a tree-like structure, therefore this is good evidence of evolution. My response to that is, again, the basic core of this is the observation that you can quantify differences among various species. Once again, you can quantify various differences between, a, I'm using the Yankee terms, American terms, you know, pickup truck, a sedan, uh, a semi-tractor trailer, a train, a plane, all these sorts of things. You can quantify the differences among them. You will get a groups within groups pattern. It has nothing to do with some sort of common ancestry or reproductive process. It's simply the way we design things. And some of it comes down to the fact that good design says, don't reinvent the wheel. You're going to put a wheel, four wheels on a car, you're going to put four wheels on a truck. Why come up with something new? It works well, reuse it. It just makes sense. That's good, good, efficient design principles, engineering principles. Why wouldn't God do the same thing if the people created in his image design things like that? So the tree of life, if you break it down to the data behind it, is, uh, is simply the mathematical relationships, similarities, and differences among the various species on our planet. And that pattern is what evolutionists cite as evidence revolution. That pattern is equally consistent with creation. And because it's consistent with both, it's not logically possible to say that somehow this evidence adjudicates the debate. You have to move on to something else to find something that does in fact, uh, is, is in fact inconsistent with one model and not the other or vice versa, or excuse me, that is consistent with one model, not the other, refutes one, but not the other. Those are the types of evidence that need to be part of the discussion, not these that fulfill the predictions of both models. Absolutely. There's a lot of amens happening in my head. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so... Um... <laughs> this, our, our, my light bulb is terrible, I do apologise. And my old eyes. <clears throat> okay, so further on in the article, Mr Knight writes, Genome sequencing shows us beyond any doubt that we are most closely related to other apes 
and all primates diverged from a common ancestor. Um, so Nathaniel, what are your thoughts about this statement and um, what does it mean from a biblical perspective with respect to Adam and Eve? The first thing that comes to mind is what we've been discussing. And I'll say it again, just because this is, this is a point that's repeated and, and this drum is beat so frequently in the evolutionary community. What he's referring to once again is this nested hierarchy groups within groups classification and what tends to bother some people or maybe excite others depending on where you're coming from is this puts the chimpanzees and the, and the great apes as the closest quantifiable species to humans and they would say well it's closest quantifiably because it's the closest genealogically we shared a common ancestor with them once again of course though we design things in nested hierarchies. God could design things in nested hierarchies as well uh, for whatever purpose he chooses. But this type of evidence does not adjudicate between these two major views. What I try to show in that latter, so part three of the book, I was going to say latter half, I think it does come out to latter half in terms of number of pages in replacing Darwin, is to show that the key type of evidence that we should use to adjudicate between these various models is genetics, which of course, Mr. Knight is citing here, genomes, the DNA comparisons among these various species. The reason I say that is because species are defined by their DNA essentially. And I, I go through reasons why I think this is true in the book. So the question then is, which of these two views makes better sense of the data that we see, number one, and number two, which makes better testable predictions? And there's several chapters that do get into some of the genetic weeds again in replacing darwin what i try to do is bring the reader up to speed on this but what i show is that the differences among modern humans are easily explicable with the model of god creating two people about six thousand years ago reducing the population size after it multiplied down to eight about four thousand five hundred years ago at noah that biblical anthropology makes good sense of the data that we see and makes testable predictions for the future so just to jumping out here, but uh, I feel like it's relevant. The book Traced is dealing with the question of, can we see the history of civilization stamped in our DNA? That's one testable prediction that flows naturally from what I just described. If indeed the world was destroyed, whatever civilizations before the pre-flood were destroyed, and the only survivors were Noah and his wife and his sons and their wives, and civilization was rebuilt from them, then all the history of civilization which is built on top of the fossil record laid down in the flood. All of that is post-flood, has a recent history. And so the Roman Empire, the Greek Empire, the, the, the invasion of Genghis Khan into Eastern Europe in the 1200s AD, all that should be stamped all throughout our DNA. You get a very different prediction from the perspective of evolution. And so that would be one type of argument, I would say, points towards creation being superior. And on the flip side, I'd say, I don't see very many good testable predictions coming from the evolutionary community. There's a there's a long history of what you might call retrodictions, where after the fact, hey, this seems to make sense from the perspective of evolution, nested hierarchies, biological similarity, all these sorts of things are examples of that, I would argue. And again, they fit equally well with the creation model and where the rubber really meets the road is in terms of explaining the numbers of genetic differences among species. And I think the data that we have points towards not just creation, but the young earth creation model and uh, the, the various function of DNA differences, which would be a, another long discussion, but these are things I go through in the book. And, and that's that's the bigger point that I, that I wanna land on. It's the creation model that is surpassing the evolutionary model by the standards the evolutionists themselves have, have laid down for what constitutes good science and what does not. 
yeah this 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 is one of my least favorite comments that he makes because it's just taking away the whole beauty of i mean it's been mentioned in this conversation previously the whole beauty of us being made in god's image the the amazing privilege that is and to for it to be brought down to the level of apes it, it's it's just oh it gets me riled up it gets me annoyed so let's move on <laughs> quick before i get to, get too rowdy about it oh okay so uh this is the last question right yeah this is the last question um so um at the end of the article mr knight um summarizes his plea with the following so i'll quote him here I'd like to offer an olive branch and say that the faith will be so much more powerful and coherent to all our fellow humans if we can come together united in loving the truth and embracing the scientific facts that give exhibition to God's creative genius. And lest we forget St Paul's desire for us to be of one mind in all matters of truth so here then he goes on to quote um, 1 Corinthians um, chapter 1 verse 10 which is I appeal to you brothers and sisters in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ that all of you agree with one another in what you say and that there be no divisions among you but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. So Nathaniel how, how would you respond to Mr Knight's olive branch? I'm laughing at Will shaking his head. I, was, I saw him exercising self-control as you were reading. Trying really hard. <laughs> <laughs> and so I, I might steal some of Will's thunder here, but uh, three points come to mind on this, and I want to camp out on that term, olive branch. So w what does that... It's a clever term, I'll, I'll say that, but I want to break down what is he calling an olive branch. So let's, let's think about what creationists, young earth creationists, have said about the theological, textual, and gospel consequences for synthesizing evolution in the scripture. So first of all, young earthers have published for years, very clear textual arguments for recent creation saying, if you compare, well, you know, that, that'd be a whole long discussion. There, there's reams of material on this saying that the text clearly teaches God created in six days, 6,000 years ago, you've got the genealogies, you've got the, the plain reading of the text in Genesis one, you've got the 10 commandments, the fourth commandment to keep the Sabbath holy anchored in the, the literal creation week. You can compare word for word what this means. There's all sorts of things you have to explain away if you want to say the universe is billions of years old and that we have common ancestors with the chimpanzees. So there's there's all sorts of textual issues. There's theological issues, which we talked about earlier. I think Bill mentioned this. You have death and suffering before sin. You've got another textual issue. So you've got thorns and thistles, Genesis 3, post-sin. Well, the fossil record is full of disease and death and suffering and thorns and thistles prior to the arrival of mankind on the evolutionary scene. How do you reconcile that? And then again, theologically, Jesus dies a physical death on the cross. A physical death is not the suffering, not the consequence of sin. Why did he die a physical death? Or uh, people talk about, well, how do you know that, that the Bible, Romans 5, when it talks about death entering the world, is talking about animal death and not just human death? Well, I would say, look at the whole narrative arc of the Old Testament. The whole Old Testament sacrificial system is the idea that animals die as a pointer to Christ, that blood has to be shed before the final blood is shed, Jesus Christ himself. How do you make sense of any of that if animal death was a good thing? Because you've got all the statements in Genesis 1, this is very good. So if you're going to try to somehow synthesize that with evolution, what do you make of all that? And then, of course, the gospel itself. We're talking about DNA. Mainstream science would now say that modern genetics 
refutes the idea of a literal Adam and Eve, that there was never a point in human history in which the, the, the human species was a population size of just two, never a pair, always a population, no literal Adam and Eve. Well, what do you do with Romans 5 when it says one man sinned and one man saved? And if, if, it, were, if it wasn't one man, if it was a population of men, people, is there a population of saviors? Are there many ways to God? It, it really strikes at the core of Christianity. So essentially, if I can paraphrase what Mr. Knight is saying, he's saying, can you please bury all that? That's my olive branch to you. And I have a hard time <laughs> finding that characterization as something accurate. I understand what he's trying to do, but I, I feel like that flies in the face of all that's transpired over the last decades on this topic. And uh, to, to call it an olive branch, to ask young earth creationists to simply do away with these concerns is, is not something I think that, that can be articulated in, in a consistent manner. Yeah, my, 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 oh, this might be my second. Um, but the, the whole reason for the olive branch is to unite in loving the truth. Now, again, what is our ultimate truth? What is the truth we look to? It shouldn't be scientific theory, which is, is named theory. It shouldn't be that. It should be truth that we have uh, in front of us. God's truth, the truth. Um, yeah, I mean, I mentioned 1 Corinthians before. I'm going to quickly read slightly further than the quoted verse, um, just to give context to this verse, because it's really important to give context when we quote biblical verses. I appeal to you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another, so that there may be no division among you, that you may be perfectly united in mind and thought. Now, this is the verse directly after. My brothers, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. Still another, I follow Christ. Now, James seems to miss that out of, of, of his article. What, what Paul is fighting against is, is man following man, like I mentioned earlier. And for me here, James is following man. Um, James, again, if you hear this, please understand what we're saying. We, we, we want you to, to follow Christ in a way that is, is, is biblical, and we'd love to talk to you about that. Um, this, is, this has been an incredible conversation. I've really enjoyed this. I've understood a lot more than I thought I would. So <laughs> thank you for explaining that in a way that is... Uh, is helpful and I, I can't leave without asking you to talk a bit about your your new book trace I know you mentioned it a little bit but but what is the what's the core idea behind it and if I may I was gonna pause it from because something else came to mind along these theological lines a testimony that might be relevant a uh, a pastor here in the United States who I'd heard going from something like a framework hypothesis which I think would be sort of a form of old earth creationism to something much more can I think to young earth creationism and to the idea that I, I think Mr. Knight here mentions it about embarrassment or yeah, Christian faith has been embarrassed and distorted. So this pastor was, he, he says he was trying to explain to a student why the framework was the way to deal with Genesis and not to be so hung up on young earth creationism. And, and he's finally, it struck me, he said, what am I saying? And the more he thought about it, he said, you know, his position now is, he said, think about the trade we're trying to offer the world. If the goal is not to be embarrassing, to not detract from the Christian faith so that people embrace the gospel, good, noble purposes. But really, do we really think that by saying to the, to the unbeliever, you can have evolution, but we're going to keep uh, the depravity of man, the substitutionary atonement of Christ, and all these offensive doctrines, 
that are at the heart of the Christian faith, is the unbeliever really going to say, that's a good trait? No, they're going to be equally offended by all this. So the idea that somehow we've got to make Christianity less offensive because evolution is embarrassing, and somehow that'll make the ideas that we're all sinners in need of a savior and that um, we're not good people, none of that is, is palatable to the world. They all think this is highly offensive. And they're not going to somehow embrace it because we're, de we're deluding ourselves to think somehow that them having evolution is going to make them open up to something that strikes at the core of who they are. This is, this evolution is at least somewhat distant. I mean, it affects how you view yourself, but uh, to say you're fundamentally evil, bent on sin, and you need God to give you the Holy Spirit to save you, no one wants to hear that. <laughs> anyway, end of rabbit, end of soapbox. So book traced. I just wanted to put that in there because anyway, it's, it's a pastor who had been somewhere else. And he says, you know, finally struck me. What am I saying? And then the more he reflected on it, he thought that doesn't make any sense. No unbeliever is really going to make that trade. Why are we trying to make this somehow palatable? Not that we should try to offend people, but we should recognize that the gospel message itself is offensive. Look how Jesus interacted with the Pharisees. They were highly offended. They couldn't stand what he was saying. That's why they tried to kill him. Yeah. Why should we respect, expect any different treatment when we're speaking the truth in love? And that's, you know, this is not an exhortation to be harsh with people, mm -hmm. but we're to speak the truth in love as Jesus did and look at how they responded to him. If this is how they treated the savior of the world, how are they going to treat his followers who seek to follow in his footsteps? So that the whole premise of this article to say that we need to make this less embarrassing, I think strays there. And there are people who've been there, but who've come back and recognized you know, that, that that doesn't make any sense. And my hope is he'll, he'll recognize that as well. With regards to Traced, this is uh, primarily, uh, and this is perhaps surprising, primarily a history book that deals with the question that I never would, had answered in school. What is the history of the, the peoples of the globe? We learned the political history. This kingdom was founded here. It falls here. And then what? Do the people go extinct? Did, did, when, when, the, when the Western Roman Empire was overthrown by the Germanic tribes, the Huns and such, did the, did the Roman people go extinct? Are modern Italians their modern descendants? These sorts of questions you really can only answer with DNA because we don't have written records, written genealogies that, that can aid us comprehensively. So that's the focus of the book. Now, the apologetic relevance of it is that, yes, we can answer these questions. Yes, we can see the echoes of known history. So, you know, extra biblical history like Genghis Khan's invasion and, and the conquest of the Romans, all that. We can see that in our DNA, but we see it only when we have the young earth time scale. And, and once again, this is this is the fulfillment of predictions put in print four and a half years prior. So that's to its to the to the creation science credit. Forty five hundred years really is the hero of the story in this case, and it sets up this whole new research program going forward because this is really the beginning of something. Uh, We've just begun to scratch the surface of the, the history of the peoples of the globe. And I've got a whole nother project that'll probably take me the rest of my life that follows on from here, which if I can put in a plug for that briefly, yeah. uh, just in case people are intrigued. You know, so, so now we have the, the ability to trace every single male line back to specific sons of Noah. This book focus, uh, focuses on the male inherited DNA, the Y chromosome. We can do that. Uh, and and with, so every person around the globe now has within themselves one of the pieces of this global puzzle to humanity's history and origins. And the, the research that I have going forward, if people have taken DNA tests or they want to take DNA tests, or maybe they're missionaries working with obscure people groups, I've got, uh, if you go to our website, answersingenesis.org slash go, G-O slash traced, which is the title of the book, 
there'll be a little button there, hidden history of every people project where people can enter their name, email, and question. And again, that's a place for, I've taken a test. How can you help me? Which son of Noah do I come from? I mean, this book, the last, uh, the last table or color plate in this book, four pages long is, hold it up so people can see it. Well, if you get a DNA result from the Y chromosome, which son of Noah do you come from? Which chapter do you look at to, to find the history? Uh, some of the details there, but again, I put this website because sometimes these DNA results aren't always straightforward. So uh, there's there's all sorts of stuff still happening. Again, the mainstream community says this shouldn't be happening. Creation scientists don't do science. Well, we've got this massive global program now being initiated to be able to uncover the history of people, groups around the world to, to finish the story of history, who we came from and what happens to people after their civilizations fall, massive apologetic ramifications, and really exciting to me. I mean, we don't have to be negative and evolution's wrong the end it's here's the problems of evolution and here's the way forward this is to me a very exciting time to be living and to be able to uncover these sorts of these sorts of questions unusual because it's creation scientists taking the lead on this and really it's the scriptural time scale that's taking the lead on this but anyway i could go on about this now i won't wax so eloquent but uh that's that's the book and the relevance of it in a nutshell and uh hopefully it'll be of use to those listening and, and viewing and, and where can where can our listeners find that book? Uh, how can they? Oh yes, I'm, thank you. That? You can uh, you can buy it through our our web store ancestorsgenesis.org. Just go there to the homepage. We have a UK branch, UK Europe branch as well. There's because of the logistical issues due to COVID, there is some delay from printing in the United States to be able to get it across the pond. But uh, there's eBooks as well that we have uh, readily available readily available for immediate download. I know the Amazon United States store has this for purchase. I haven't yet checked if the UK one did. I know Replacing Darwin uh, was on several international UK sites, and that, excuse me, international Amazon sites, including the UK, I think Germany, India, that sort of thing. So it, I anticipate this book will be up there eventually as well. Uh, or you can get it through the publisher, Masterbooks. So I think it's masterbooks.com or .org. You can find it there. Uh, both of those books can be purchased in those places. We'll, uh, we'll link those in, in the show notes in each video, Spotify as well. Um, do you have anything else to add? No, it's no, a massive happy? thank you. <laughs> yeah, thank you so much once again, Nathaniel. Um, for those listening, do go find his book, uh, uh, Replacing Darwin, and also Trace, which is coming up, and find some of his videos on YouTube. I watched one with the, just the view of the ARC experience behind. I was very envious of that. Um, so do go find, follow Answers and Genesis and all they do. It's amazing. Um, we're big fans. Thank you once again. Uh, thank you for listening, those who are listening, and thank you for watching, those who are watching. We'll see you soon.